0: Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Sabbath. Our call to worship this morning is from the uh, New Testament, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. The Pew Bible is on page 892. I'll be reading from the King James Version, and that's Matthew 4, starting with verse uh, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy. And he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Blessed be the word of God.
1: Amen. Good morning. Our first gospel reading this morning is found on page 892 in your pew Bible. We're reading in the New International Version. And it it is the uh, introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So we're going to start with Matthew um, chapter 5, and we're going to verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit.
2: Verses 10 and 11 and 12 have particular meaning, don't they, in light of what happened in North Korea this week. You may have heard, 80 people were rounded up, put into a stadium. High school students, college students brought into the stadium. The 80 people were accused of anti-government activities, including possession of Bibles. They were shot publicly and then riddled with automatic gunfire to the point that their corpses were no longer recognizable. This is the world in which we live. Not our world here in Santa Clarita, but the world in which we live. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, the scripture says. I don't think we have much of an appreciation at least I don't, the vast majority of the time of what that really means. We've been talking about work, the work that God does, the work that we're called to do and the importance of our work, and perhaps there is no more important work than we engage than the creation of culture. It's very interesting how God makes everything, humankind in his image, Visits with Adam and Eve in the garden encourages them to begin to name things Establishes them in a garden in which they're to tend for it Tend it he creates a kind of agricultural Community and culture right there on the spot that defines what they might be about at least initially brief all They engage the work before them and we note that From there on, humans organize themselves in groups that tend toward language and culture. It's the way in which we are in the world. Language influences culture, culture shapes language, and so forth and so on. The two interrelate and react, and we do this work. It's a very important work because it's not unlike the work God does in creation itself. You see, human beings are... We come into the world from the process of procreation, obviously, but we're not born socialized. That takes 20, 25 years. We we have a becoming process in which we become mature adults, human beings. And that involves complex things that we learn from very early on about the nature of the way things are. Only human beings don't tend to live with things the way they are. We're creatures that make meaning. We're meaning makers. And so as we interact with the world around us, meaning is made of those interactions and those relationships. We begin to connect things. And certain objects, both created and natural, begin to have certain importance in the way in which we relate. Or we develop fears around certain things. Think about snakes, almost, well, some people love snakes, but snakes are otherwise almost universally feared. I have a feeling I could empty this place out pretty quick with a snake, especially if it was a poisonous one. There might be some injuries trying to get out the door. Um, get to something even a little more ominous and we would all be uh, trampling one another to get out. Bring a tiger in and unleash him or, you know, just think about any kind of beast that we can't contend with on our own. We develop cultural fears. We develop cultural things that we admire. We begin to react and relate to the world according to some of those that are even preset, even if we've never had an experience of a tiger in the room. Or a snake. When Christians interact in the world, and they do so in light of who God calls us to be, they create culture. Now, I know this doesn't seem very obvious, or maybe it seems terribly obvious, but what I hear us doing, and and I, I have several references in the bulletin that I'd love for you to follow up on. I'd love for you to read Andy Crouch any book you can get a hold of his terrific stuff love for you to read gabe lions these are two contemporary evangelical authors who are writing amazing stuff about changing the world in which we live from the vantage point of being christian in the world and the sphere of influence in which we find ourselves it's not pie in the sky stuff it's about shaping the way others think through the way we we interact with god and move through our own experiences. So I think I told you this one before, but I'll just recap it briefly so you get a quick idea. Gabe Lyons has a little boy who has Down syndrome. And his experience with the medical community was not positive, going through the process of discovering that his little boy had Down syndrome. Uh, In fact, I think they found it in utero, and he was strongly encouraged to abort the child, and there were a number of things going on. And he, he was really discouraged with what he encountered in, in the community. Very, very distressed. But instead of railing against the medical community, instead of uh, being very critical, instead of writing all kinds of lambasting things about the doctors that he encountered or whatever, he decided that he would do something positive they had their child, began to raise him, named him, uh, and as this boy got a little bit older, they began photographing him doing the things that he loved to do. And the joy on this boy's face, and the intensity and the interaction, the image of God so clearly visible in this child came through the photography. And then he began to write about the experience of parenting. And he put together a brochure that is now a standard brochure, I guess in most doctor's offices, about Down syndrome, in which it talks about the experience of finding out that their child had this issue, the experience of of going through the pregnancy, the experience of raising this child, and now parents go to a doctor's office and learn this, and they aren't just told, well, you ought to abort this child, they have a brochure that outlines positive options. Do you see what happened here? Gabe Lyons took an experience that was dear to him and instead of being negative about a community and railing against, he decided it was a point of education and that God could use him to change the culture. And he did. By God's grace, he changed the culture. He began to help people see different options and think of things differently. That's powerful. I, I, at least I think it's powerful. Some of you are looking at me like, really? Okay. I think it's extremely powerful. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, Beatitude, Sermon on the Mount. We think of it as Jesus in his little robe with the purple sash, standing with his hand raised, and a bunch of people in funny-looking clothes sitting on the mountain, right, with their little lunches of two fish and, you know, five loaves of bread. And we get all the stories confused, you know. Isn't this where the demoniacs come? No, that's another one across the lake. And, all right, so we have Jesus, and it's the Sermon on the Mount, and we think Matthew 5, but it's really uh, 5, 6, 7. It's a huge section in Matthew And he begins with the blesseds. And some of us memorize them. I think I did it one time, but I'm not going to attempt it today. Uh, I would have to review that a bit to make sure it was uh, accurate in my head. But Jesus begins with the blesseds. Blessed are you, blessed are you. And they are interesting to us. Let's read them again really quickly. They're interesting to us because they seem, uh, well, so helpful for people who might be down and out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. You're going to be comforted. All good so far. Blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. Nobody knows what that means. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be filled. Good, we're on track so far. Blessed are the merciful. They're going to be shown mercy. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Absolutely. All right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. That's a little tougher, but well, I'm not sure. We'll work on that one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder who we were referring to there. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. How odd. Amen. Amen. Jesus keeps talking in the sermon the way it is presented in the the thing. Our read of it is fast, it's cursory, it sounds nice, it's poetry, blessed, blessed, blessed. It talks about these people who are down and out. Maybe we see ourselves in one or two of the categories, maybe we don't. But what we're missing is a revolution in culture. Jesus did the work in this sermon of turning the world upside down on its head. Now we know Luke records the same Sermon on the Mount, and he does so a little differently. I'm sticking with the math and account today. Matthew adds that little phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, that Luke doesn't add. So maybe he's being generous. I'm not really, I can't get inside his head on this one. I can't tell you exactly what he was thinking. Maybe he meant the poor, the people who also aren't poor but feel like they're poor. Or maybe he meant those just of humble estate in general, whether they had something or didn't have something. But he's, he's very close to a revolution here. Let's just go through it and remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus is saying here. You see, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is something that ought to be sought. It's the pearl of great price. It's the kingdom of God is the most precious, the most valuable, the most vital, the most amazing thing that you could ever have. We would think of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' day as belonging to those who were righteous, that is to say, those who kept the law, every jot, every tittle, every phrase, those who knew it, those who had memorized it. So the educated, the elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these would be the people that would be at the top of the rung, first in line for the kingdom of heaven. They would have done the work of knowing their religion and knowing it well, and theirs would be the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, that group of people, that class of people was not poor, not monetarily, not in any way. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They were esteemed. They were the ones to whom the kingdom of God belonged. In fact, they were the gatekeepers for the religious life in general. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke says, Luke's version of what Jesus said is, Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, wait a minute. Really? Don't you need to go back to rabbi school? I think you've got this wrong, Jesus. The poor are poor because they've sinned or they're undeserving. You're saying theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the mourners, for they will be comforted. We have a lot less trouble with this one. It seems a lot less revolutionary. But again, the identification with those who have lost something precious. Those who no longer have. You see, in this case it could be a wife mourning a husband. And what status has she now in society? It could be a couple of kids Now orphaned or without a father, what's to become of their inheritance? What's to become of them in life? How will they survive? Will some of them have to be sold for a time into slavery to make things work economically for the family? Blessed are you who mourn because you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Perhaps In human terms, this one makes the least sense of all. The humble get trampled, as we well know. The humble get stepped on. They get overlooked and overrun. The humble aren't aggressive enough to take their fair share of anything. The meek don't inherit the earth, they don't inherit much of anything but the abuse of everyone who's willing to step on them to get where they're going. And Jesus says, I don't think so. We're gonna take this class of people and give them the earth. Wait a minute. This ties to those other things Jesus has said. If I wanna be first in the kingdom of God, I need to be last and the servant of all." Radical. Completely radical. Culture changing. Life changing. Thought changing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I don't have much to say about that. It seems to me that one is open-ended anybody might hunger or thirst for righteousness and be filled. But when we remember that, let's do remember the story of the rich young ruler who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And when given living water to drink, passed it up in favor of what he already had. Right? It's a difficult thing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's subtle, isn't it? Pure in heart. It's not just my actions. It's not just my religiosity. It's not just my capacity to keep the law in every appearance of the law. It's what's happening within me. It's why the widow's mite could be considered greater treasure than anything given that day because it represented her all in the totality of her heart, her full dedication to God. Perhaps it's why Jesus, when he talks about the commandments, and we're going to get to this just in a bit, expands them for us. You'll see it shortly. It's going to take more than a superficial adherence to a set of laws or rules, more than an outward appearance of goodness to be an inheritor, to see God. It's going to take purity in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus had an interesting title given him, Prince of Peace. So much of the Old Testament language around who Jesus was talks about a new era of peace. How is it that we, how is it that first century Israel was called to be peacemakers? How are we called to be peacemakers? You see, there were so many at the time who couldn't wait to defeat Rome, to drive them from their land. They were anything but peacemakers. There were whole parties, including zealots, who sought to harm those who occupied their land. And Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You may not get the name patriot, but peacemaker is what counts. (laughs) Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a flip too, isn't it? An o- not an obvious one. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees were considered righteous, but they weren't persecuted for their righteousness. There was nothing revolutionary about it. There was nothing threatening about it. There was nothing about the simple adherence to a code of law that made anybody look twice. Twice. It was the power that was present in Jesus. It was the authority of the word he spoke. It was the word of righteousness because he did what was right even when it transcended the law. There's a whole section in the New Testament on woes to scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus goes after these people who have this pretense of righteousness of keeping all the law, but neglect the weightier matters. They tithe of the dill and the cumin, but they don't take care of their mothers and fathers. You see, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. When Jesus speaks the Beatitudes in terms of the blessed, are you, sections, he's turning the world upside down. He's telling us that the order of the way humans have put things is not his order. It's not the way he's going to to live it. It's not the way he's going to teach it. It's not the way he's going to model it. It's not going to be the way he expects people to follow it. He says, suffer the children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He takes those with no power and no status and no money and no righteousness and makes them of account. It turns not just the religious order on its head, it turns the social order on its head. You see, the Romans were not kind they occupied cruelly and yet Jesus says to the Jews if a roman tells you to carry his pack for a mile carry it to go the extra mile that's where we get that phrase go the extra not for your friend not for people you like or love or care about for your enemy go the extra mile. It turns the world on its head. So Our first section today, when we think about making culture, is what it might mean to speak a different kind of truth into a culture in which we find ourselves.
3: I'll be reading uh, Matthew 5 verses 38 through 48. In the Pew Bible, it's page 893. I'll be reading uh, from the New King James Version. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect.
2: And so we find a new shattering of expectations. A new command, a new set of things so surprising we don't even know what to do with them. Between what we just read and what we had read earlier, the beginning of five, we find Jesus saying some things like this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember I said about the expansion of the commandments? Murder, he says. Do not murder. But he who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment also. Anybody who calls his brother a fool is unanswerable to the Sanhedrin. Anybody who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. He expands hatred, I mean, murder, to include hatred and judgment. Adultery, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But when you look with lust at someone, you've done so in your heart. Ouch, it's impossible. It becomes immediately impossible. Divorce, you don't get to throw your spouse away, not for trivial reasons. Because you're hard-hearted, I'll permit it for adultery. Oaths, boy, people were fond of contracts and it took the form of oaths We're fond of contracts today, and we don't call them oaths, mostly because we don't swear by heaven and earth and everything that crawls on the earth and everything that swims in the seas anymore. We sign our names, and if we uh, don't pay, we don't pay, I guess. The taxpayers cover it for us. Well, not really, but you get the idea. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no, Don't swear by heaven and earth. Don't use my name in all this. Do your business with integrity. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now we get to our reading. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. The law of lex talionis was fundamental to the fabric of society. It was even embedded in the Mosaic law. It was part of the revelation that Moses received to give to Israel. So you have Jesus now stepping on this, not just as a cultural norm that emerges independent of revelation or emerges independent of law. It comes with the Mosaic code. He's saying, you've heard it this way, and I'm going to reveal to you a different side of the Father. You cannot act out of hate. And out of vengeance, you cannot destroy the image of God in another person because they've destroyed the image of God in you or in someone that you love. That is mine. Vengeance is for me, for I am the Lord. Revolution. What are we going to do with our cities of refuge? What are we going to do with our courts that have sanctioned this kind of violence? What are we going to do with a culture that had a philosophy that violence was the only and best deterrent to violence? Um, Does that sound familiar, by the way, to any of you? Sound like maybe the culture you find yourself in? You can have my gun when they pry it out of my cold, dead hands. There you go. That was free. <laughs> no extra offering required for that one. And actually, you have to give more if you want me to stop. <laughs> How about that? I'll I'll quit when. Perhaps the most painful piece is love for enemies, right? It is for me. I enjoy holding on sometimes to little grievances, petty slights. On occasion, I enjoy recalling a great injustice done me and satisfying myself that somehow I've risen above it. (laughs) Heaven help me. Heaven help you. Jesus says, Anybody can hang out with their friends and be loving to people that love them or their family. Anybody can do that. You don't have to be special. You don't even have to be righteous. But God loves the sinner. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so Jesus tells us right in advance, it's a different order of things with me. This just won't work. We have a new order. There's a new way in which we're going to live. It's not the law, it's beyond the law. It's more than the law. It's not the law, it's even a corrective to the law. The new way we're going to live
0: is love. The third Gospel reading is also from Matthew, chapter 6, verses 28 through 34. Pew Bible is page 894. I'll be reading Matthew 6, starting with verse 28. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil
2: thereof. So right off, we're told not to borrow trouble. There's enough trouble in a given day. And right off, we're told not to worry. Now that reminds me of a lot of songs and Disney videos and, you know, Kahuna Matata or however that goes. and It's fun stuff. My favorite is the Don't Worry, Be Happy song. A landlord says your rent is late, don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> says he might have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. And I think you can't see it because it's in the in, in the the recording is there. But I think about that point he goes. Pfft. Jesus says, why are you worrying? Yeah, that's right. What are you worrying for? What Jesus says is, look, the order of things that you're used to is that you pursue the physical with all of your energy. You try to meet your family's needs. You try to put clothes on your back. See, the thing is, though, you don't just put a set of clothes on your back. Let's just tell the truth about ourselves. We don't work so that we can have a car we work so that we can have a car for every member of our family we don't work so that we can have shelter we work so that we can have shelter big enough that we can get away from the people we don't like in our own family okay it isn't a one-room house or a two or a three you know what is it that you want in a house you don't need a bathroom you need five bathrooms in your house I mean It must happen more often than we think that everybody has to go at the same time. We don't work to put clothes on our back. We work so that we can put a storage unit closet thingy full of clothes into the garage and fill up the downstairs closets and the upstairs closets and cram the front end closets. We live where it never gets below 45 degrees and we have six coats that will take us down to minus 30. Okay? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but you know, at the end of all of that, we don't have the money to pay our tithe. I'd like to, but I I need that... I've got to replace the 50-inch television on my patio. Right? No, it's just old. I want something faster, better, 3D. 3D, we need 3D. We don't have money to support God's house. What's what's with this? What's going on? Why are we $30,000 behind in our budget? When our budget is smaller than many of your household budgets... You have two people working at your house. Our whole year church budget is smaller than your household budget. It is. Trust me. Our household budget for this entire church is $158,000. And there are a lot of you that gross more than that. Especially if you have two people working in your house. Why is it that we can't raise $158,000 a year here? Just ask him. Just ask him. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness and everything else will be met. Do we not believe him? Do we not trust him? Do we think somehow that he's not thinking of our best interest? That he doesn't want you to thrive? That he doesn't want you to have all that you need? That he doesn't care about your well-being? You think that's why he says this? Because I'll tell you what, he's not telling you to go do this. That's not his message. That's not the kind of be happy he's talking about. It's not happy found in medications or sex or addictions. It's not the kind of happy found in the world. He's talking about a deep sense of trust. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't go to that tree. And we said, oh, really? Here we go. God said, don't eat of it, you're going to die. We said, we're not sure we believe you. In fact, we don't trust you. We chose death. Trusting God is the most difficult thing for a human to do, and it is the most obvious thing that we all have to do. We don't give ourselves life We don't resurrect ourselves to life anew. We don't prepare a heaven for ourselves. We don't don't get any of this stuff done. We have the life we live. We have to trust God for everything else. And we're so reticent to do so. What Jesus does in this little corrective here in Matthew, what he does in part of his whole discussion of what it means to live differently, to create a new culture, a Christian culture, if you will, As he says, you must return to trust. Don't worry. God will take care of you. Don't worry. Trust me. You might want to read the part in between. It's very interesting. He says, you know, there are a lot of good things you can do in life. But don't frame your life with that. When you give, give generously, but don't trumpet it around. When you pray, don't make a religious show of it. Don't be the guy who goes into the corner and says, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman or a slave. Thank you that I'm better than all these people and sit down. Don't do that. Be the guy who says, have mercy, have mercy. Jesus says, when you fast, wash your face, do your hair, put your makeup on, don't look like you're suffering, don't go out into the world moping, how you doing, Greg? Oh, well, it'd be a lot better if I'd had breakfast, but God is calling me to a fast. Mercy. That's true, by the way, I didn't have breakfast. I wouldn't lie to you I really wouldn't Jesus says look there's only one place where all that you long for can't be molested there's only one place in which all that you long for can be really fulfilled and that's heaven where your treasure is is where your heart's going to be Where you live your life is where your heart's gonna be. What you invest in, not just materially, but in your time and your energy, your thought, your care, your love, your purpose, that's that's where it's gonna be. Jesus came to change right there and then. In this sermon, he changes everything about what we value, how we think the world ought to operate, what we think is important where we should spend our time, what our economic resources ought to go to, what it is that we ought to care about, who we ought to honor. Everything changes in this sermon. Now, I'm overdue. Three minutes, and I'm going to take you three minutes more. What is it that you can change in your life that will change the culture around you? What can you change in your life that will change The culture of your family or the culture of your church what can you change what can one single thing can you do that might make a change in this narcissistic society we live in what will you engage how will you shift yourself and then shift the culture this doesn't have to be complicated what kind of culture do you want for church, for example? Do you like the culture that says we begin at 11 for church, but we're not full until 1140? Is that a good culture? Is that a culture that's going to influence the world in a positive kind of way with how serious we are about what we do here? Are we, how, how happy are we about the culture we're creating around our children or our seniors? What are the values we're communicating there? I don't know. What does it say? The culture we have versus the culture we want. What is it that you want? See, everybody wants to be a part of something that's awesome. Right? No? Maybe four or five of you are big on the underdog. How many of you root for a football team that has never won a Super Bowl? All right, there's always one in the crowd. How many of you root for, you know, you get the idea. There are some of us who just love the underdog. We're always happy in in the rooting for the team that's going to lose. But most of us want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, that's extraordinary in some way. And the only way that happens is when you are a part of that extraordinariness. When you create it, when you step in and say, I want things to be different, you get how that works? It can be as simple as something to do with the physical structure, of the way we work, live, and worship. Or it could be something as complex as modeling a different kind of value by organizing your own business, for example, differently. organizing your company in a way that's more just or equitable, righteous or fair. I don't know what it's going to be for you, but I want to challenge you before I sit down with what Jesus has done. We read this, we celebrate this, we say, isn't it wonderful, but it isn't our culture that just got mowed over, or is it? It is. It is. He wants us to create something beautiful, something positive, something reflective of Him in the world because He's created you in His image and He's called you to Himself. And He said, you are my child and you are mine forever. And the culture that we want to create isn't just a reflection of what is. The culture we wanna create is a culture that moves beyond the violence, the prejudice, the ignorance, the superstition, the narcissism, the greed, the selfishness. We wanna create a culture that reflects something of God to a world. So, think about that this week. What sorts of things might God be calling you to create or to do or to participate in that will shape and redefine Christian culture in America as we know it. And so we say, thanks be to God for the grace that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. Amen.